Luke's Gospel and chapter 22. As we continue there, we are looking particularly at the last evening in the life of the Lord Jesus. Our meditation this morning, we've been thinking of him coming into the world. Well, now we're thinking of that time when he is getting ready to depart from the world. All right? Remember, he spoke his last message to the crowd. And then he entered the upper room for the Passover meal. And they all sat down together. Remember last week, or last time we did it, we saw how he washed the feet of the disciples, didn't he? And he taught them that wonderful lesson on how they should learn to stoop in order to serve. That's very important. You must stoop if you're going to serve God's people. And then he gave them that new commandment, they should love one another, saying to them, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Now, the next thing that goes on in his life, and we are seeking to be sort of stick chronologically, time-wise to the events that he did, it's not easy to get it, be completely sure about the exact order, but I'll do my best as to what seems to present itself in Scripture. But the next thing is he kept, keeps the Passover with the disciples. Then it would seem that he exposes Judas, the betrayer, and then he institutes a new feast altogether, that is the Lord's Supper. And there's some tremendously beautiful pictures and meaning in what the Lord Jesus does in these few verses. So keep that in mind. Number one, the keeping of the Passover. Number two, the exposing of Judas the betrayer. And number three, the taking of the, the Passover um, emblems and using those symbols for the institution of the Lord's Supper. So first of all, let's go to Luke 22, and we will be there in Luke verses 14 to 18. <clears throat> now understand verses 14 to 18 apply all to the uh, Passover feast, all right? All of it, 14 down to 18. When the hour was come, you see, everything's under con- divine control, not under Satan's control. He sat down completely at peace and at rest and in full control of the situation and that night of his betrayal when the forces of darkness were raging at their worst and doing all they could. Nonetheless, no, he is in control. He sits down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said, With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. Now he'd taken the Passover feast in previous times, at least twice before, could be more, but we'll say several times before. But he said, I really want to eat this one with you before I suffer. Right? For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Notice that comment. And he took the cup. This is the Passover cup. Most likely the last of the Passover cups, but I'm not going to go into the details of how they kept the Passover feast at the Lord's time there. And he said, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom 
of God shall come. Now it's only Luke that gives us all that detail about the Passover and the last of the Passover cups. And what I want you to notice is, one, he desired it, and two, he sat and he gave it and partook of it. And I want you to notice the comment, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come or was fulfilled. Now, you sort of look at that and you think, well, what's in the Lord's mind? He's taking the Passover, the last of the Passovers, before he suffers, before the symbols are fulfilled in their significance. And he says, I won't be doing this anymore. I won't be feasting with you anymore until the kingdom of God shall come. What does that mean? The Passover feast, he's going to do it again in some other time, he says. Now just remember the Passover to get the full significance of what's going on here. You remember the people of God. You remember they were in bondage in Egypt. You remember they cried out to the Lord for deliverance because of the state that they were in. And God comes down and through Moses said, go and tell Pharaoh that's got my people in bondage, let my people go. Now he didn't just say that, see. Not let my people go so they've got an easier life. It's not just let my people go so they can live more pleasantly. Let my people go that they might serve me. Now that is a really important, important point I want you to get. And of course Pharaoh says no. And of course God brings the ten plagues one by one, remember, on the nation of uh, the Egyptians. And when the final plague where he says, look, tonight, since you won't let my people go, I'm going to move through the whole land of Egypt. And what's going to happen is in every house the eldest in the family is going to die. There's a terrible threat, a terrible sense of coming judgment. But he said, if you will take a lamb on the 10th day of the month, and if you will just keep that lamb until the 14th day of the month, and then on that 14th day of the month, when in the evening I'm going to send my destroying angel to pass through the land in judgment and to go into every doorway and to see to it that the eldest in the family and in the cattle, that they actually die under my hand because you won't let my people go in order that they might serve me. He says, if a family will take a lamb that they've kept the 10th to the 14th day, a lamb that's a perfect without spot or without blemish, without any defects in it, and on that night they will take that lamb and they will kill it. And then they will actually pour out its blood. And then they will sit down to a, a meal. And they will roast the lamb with fire. And they will, they will eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. In the meantime, they will take that blood and they will actually put it over the doorposts of the house in which they're living for the night. Don't go out of your doorway until the morning. There's judgment out there. But you put the blood on the side post and on the lintel, the top part, and what will happen is this, that when the destroying angel comes to a doorway and he sees that blood, I will hover over and protect you so no judgment will ever come in. Because God says, when I see that blood, I will know in that house is a family who has believed me, a family who has obeyed my word, 
A family who has taken a lamb and the lamb has died instead of the oldest in the family. And they have believed and they have put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel and they spent the night sheltering safely under the blood. Then there'll be no judgment. And in the morning, what happened? There was not one house of the Egyptians in which there was not one dead. That's terrible. And there was a great cry over all the land, right from the maid, the serving maid, and the prisoner in the dungeon, right up to the very house of the king himself, because God had moved in judgment. But in the house of the people of God was safety, sheltering under the blood. Now they kept a feast of memorizo as a memorial for the wonderful thing that had happened on that night. Because if the people of God were let go, Pharaoh says, look, go, get away. I'm letting you go, I can stand no more. And they'd been safe, sheltering under blood. And God has let his people go in order that those people might serve him and no longer be in bondage. Right. The Lord Jesus says, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat this Passover with you because this will be the last Passover before I suffer. But there's coming a time when, you know, I shall be eating it and enjoying the fruit of it and the meaning of it in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God shall come. Now, what does that mean? Many people would actually tell us that and say, and it's a reasonable point of view, I suppose, there's something in it, that in actual fact, Israel will keep the feasts again in a coming day, in the coming, when the kingdom has come in the fullness of its glory. In all fairness, I struggle to completely accept that because I can never work out why God's people, right, will celebrate the shadow when the substance has already come. Why would they go back to a symbol that spoke of an event in the past or a symbol that was yet to be fulfilled? And when the truth was, the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. Why keep the feast of the old covenant when the new had been established? When the kingdom of God shall come. When would the kingdom of God come? I tell you, the kingdom of God actually came, not in the fullness of splendor where the Lord Jesus will reign over all the earth and have all evil put down and everything in perfection, but he will be crowned but a few days onwards from this very event. He will, you know, he will rise from the dead, having broken the power of sin and of Satan and of death and of hell. And shortly afterwards in the resurrection, he will ascend up on high and he will sit down at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. So you see, he says, I will drink it in a new way. In other words, he is now on the throne. He is not looking towards suffering. He's looking back on his own sufferings. And as the Lamb of God, he has borne away the sin of the world. He sits on the throne and God's kingdom has already come. Yes, it will come in fullness and meaning in a day to come. But even now, fellow believers, he celebrates and he rejoices with his people who have been, what? Set free to serve him. Not for an easier life, but liberated from bondage and the power of sin which held us captive in order that we might serve our blessed God. 
We're sheltered under blood, washed not by the symbolic, but by the reality. The reality of a lamb who has borne away the sin of the world. And it's pictured so gloriously in Revelation, which we've done in months gone by, when standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, where grace is reigning in mighty power. That's the meaning of Mount Zion. And there they are with their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. What are they doing? They're singing the song of the soul set free. Now that's the meaning of the Passover, you see. Fulfilled in us in the present time. For Israel, they rejoiced that they were set free from the bondage of Egypt. They were set free from the slavery of Pharaoh. They saw their enemies dead on the seashore and they sang on the, on the edge of the Red Sea a glorious triumphant song. But even now, as we have been set free from the bondage of sin, we, his people, already in his kingdom, rejoice, what? That Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And I verily believe there's the sense in the, what the Lord Jesus is saying, I will be drinking it in a new way. Not, not looking back to Pharaoh, not merely dealing with symbols, but in the new way of the fact that the meaning of it has been gloriously fulfilled that with my people who will say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us Therefore, let us keep the feast, right? Not with the malice of leaven and the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. You see, here it's celebrated with the symbols, with a dark cloud of suffering lying ahead. But never again will it be like this. Never again will be set free from sin, a power far greater than Pharaoh. And we're able to serve him. Not symbolically, but really. There's an old hymn I, I dug up, which I haven't heard for years, and he, the hymn writer captured the meaning of this very beautifully. He said, when referring to you know, Israel singing on the banks of the Red Sea there, he said, Thy presence called for Israel's praise when compassed by their mortal foes. You can see you know, Pharaoh and his army trying to get them back into bondage chasing after them and surrounding they're going to get them when compassed by their mortal foes and when in death they met their gaze what songs of glorious triumph rose remember that morning when they saw their enemies dead on the seashore and we have known redemption lord from bondage worse than theirs by far sin held us by a stronger cord yet by thy mercy free we are set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the people of God. Sheltering under blood, the shackles of sin have been broken. The Lamb of God, O Lamb of God, my sacrifice, the blood was shed for me. For me. And then what does he do? Goes on and institutes the Lord's Supper. It reads that way, but that isn't really what happened. If you go through the, all the Gospels, you'll get a picture now. It's time to deal with Judas. It's time to set 
the program in motion whereby he will become the lamb who bears away the sin of the world. He will shed his blood on the truly on the Passover night. He shed his blood on the Passover night. He was sacrificed on the Passover time. Do you realize that? The day of the Passover, he was sacrificed for sin. He was the true lamb of God. He was the true meaning of the symbol. But he first must deal with Judas. Now I think we'll go to John 13 to get the best picture of what happens with Judas. Alright, as we go through the events of the night, I want you to read, look at verse 21 of John 13. <clears throat> Actually in verse 18, the Lord Jesus, just giving his last words here, he says, the scripture is now going to be fulfilled that he that eats breads with me has lifted up his heel against me and I'm telling you, even before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Right? Verse 21. I want you to notice this. He's about to expose Judas, his plot and his plan, and to set in motion all the actions of the priests and the Pharisees and his enemies and of the devil himself to bring about the crucifixion. And when he had said thus, he was troubled in spirit, and he testified, verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Now this Judas that he's going to point out is described as the son of perdition. He actually says, one of you is a devil. That this man was, becomes totally devil-possessed, totally controlled, totally identified. A son of perdition you know, it's a, it's a son of damnation, judgment, hell. And he ends up, he says, he goes to his own place. Now, the Lord is faced with the fact that he's going to expose this man. And he's troubled in his spirit. Just imagine how he felt as he thought of someone who'd been with him for three and a half years. Someone who he loved. Someone whose feet he'd actually washed. Someone who he had taught would actually be so black as to sell himself out to the devil and allow himself to be the very one who would betray him. And the Lord must have seen a picture of how of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the blackness of the human heart. And at that moment he was so troubled to think that his creature could suit so low and could become such a thing and so utterly sinful. He saw the exceeding sinfulness of mankind. And then he knew, then he knew that once he set this thing in motion, and once he brought it to actually happen, he would be actually shutting the door forever on any chance of Judas's salvation. He would be shutting the door forever on a soul who is desperately needing salvation. I mean, that troubled him. That troubled him. Because, you see, it's not in God's heart. He is slow in judgment. He doesn't will the death of any, the scripture says. And when he thinks that this man is going to go into utter darkness forever, with never another turning point, the moment I do what I'm going to do, is what he's thinking, you see. He was troubled in his spirit. He wondered, and what well, says that one of you shall betray me. 
This is what happens. The disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spoke. In other words, they were flabbergasted. I'm one of them. And there's leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Actually, the other Gospels tell us they were so taken aback that they went around saying, Lord, is it I? Is it, is it I? I mean, it could be me as anybody. This is, this is a, something that's distressing. But there's this one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, leaning on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And he had dipped the sop he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now just understand the sop. The sop was something which the, the host would take a portion of the food. Most likely be like taking a piece of the pasta over the bread, the unleavened bread, and dipping in the juices of the meat, and then handing it to a particular person sitting at the table. Actually, it was a sign of friendship when the host did that to a guest, singled out one particular guest. It was a, a sign of friendship or of esteem, right? And so you see, if you like in modern terms, if you can't understand what that means, it, it's almost like drinking a toast, if you will, when you single somebody out for particular recognition and you, you honour the guest that's at the table. That's the same idea, really. I'm not going into toasting right or wrong or whatever. And the Lord would, as it were, make one final appeal to this man. He's troubled in his spirit, the Lord is. He's, he's going to shut out forever any chances of Judas ever coming to bless him. And he would make him, as it were, one final gesture of favour and appeal and affection. He's already washed his feet. But singling the whole of them out, he would say to him, Look, Judas, my love is still extended towards you. And what does it say? And Judas took the sock. After the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. Satan actually shuts, actually takes complete control of this man because this man, what he's done, he has shut Christ out and he's shut the devil in. Right? It's a terrible thing when that happens, you know. You say, well, nobody do that today. Look, I'm sorry, but that's what's happening today. People who actually have the offer of Christ and salvation. In our Western world, people who know the meaning of the gospel, and they do. And they have some understanding of Christianity. There's an awful movement where there's a deliberate shutting of the door against the grace of God and the message of the gospel. A deliberate rejection of Christ and of God, and instead an opening of themselves up to everything that is foul, black, evil, and perverse. And they would far rather embrace all that is absolutely sinful and satanic and deliberately shut out the claims of God. It's deliberate. You understand that? And this produces people whom the devil uses to go against the cause of Christ. That's what it produces. It's interesting speaking with Martin. He says, when he gets interviewed by somebody, sometimes you get that sense of, oh, this is evil, you know, there's a sense of darkness and power in the room. And he said the interviewers are always the most angry and the most vicious and the most attacking. And he said, I have learned 
that usually when you go and look at the history of the one who's interviewing you, they themselves have come from a Christian background. I remember the latest one in Canberra, the newest one in Canberra, when he came away and he said, Phew, the woman was just vile. She was so angry at what I said and so unreasonable and so attacking. You looked her up, she was brought up in a Christian home and she turned her back on the gospel. You shut Christ out. You may well end up shutting the devil in, you see. That's the message here. It's very strong. And we are seeing that in our Western world as they turn from God to serve their idols. They are actually serving Satan. And they would rather have what the devil said than what God said. And that's a bad day. And it's a dark day. And indeed the whole program of evil is set in motion and furthered by such people as it was by Judas himself. And the Lord just looks at him and says, Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly, will you? Do it quickly. He's in total control here. You might say, well, stop him. No, no. Satan has the plan. Judas joins the satanic forces. God is in control for he has that overall plan of redemption. And he says, you do it quickly. And Judas, you better do it quickly because I know the priests or the high priests out there and the Pharisees, they're planning to do it not at the feast of the Passover. You see that? Because of the crowd. He said, well, I'm telling you to do it quickly because I must die in the meaning of the Passover, the fulfillment of the Passover. In verse 28 to 29, notice what happens. No man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. That's incredible, you know. This most distressing event has occurred. This incredible disturbance in the team, if you like, which was, they were already apprehensive with what lay ahead. It could have broken up the whole company and ruined everything that was going on in the upper room. But you see the wisdom of the Lord that he does it in such a way that they actually, when Judas goes out, they thought, oh... He's just going to buy some food. Oh, maybe he's not. Maybe he's going to give some money to the poor. But the fact is, he went out in order to take final counsel for the death of the Lord Jesus. And it says he then, having received that sop, verse 30, he went immediately out, and it was night. And it was night in more ways than one for that poor, poor, Christ-rejecting man. In Judas's soul was a darkness. The darkness of a night in which the light, into which the light of God would never, never shine again. Oh, don't you cry out in compassion for a soul that turns their back upon Christ deliberately, knowingly, and turns to sin and Satan deliberately and knowingly, for they're going into a night into which the light of the presence of God will never, never shine. He says later on when Judas comes with the crowd, he says to them, look, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And this is a son of perdition, ruin and destruction and damnation. He's going to go to the blackness of darkness forever. That's the way scripture talks. It talks about darkness in a way that makes it so that you can sort of feel it, you know? When it's outer darkness, you know, it's not like the first phase of darkness, it's like the ultimate phase of darkness. And it is a description of a terrible thing when a soul rejects Christ and chooses otherwise. Go back to Luke 23. Judas has gone out. What does the Lord Jesus do in Luke 22? In verse 19 to 20, he does something absolutely wonderful. 
And he, the Lord Jesus, he takes bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new testament or covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now this is remarkable. He takes the symbols from the Passover and he, he now uses them to institute what we call the Lord's Supper or you may call it the communion service or the Eucharist but he is bringing in something completely new transforming the meaning of the old into something with a completely new dimension in it a fuller realisation as he institutes the Lord's Supper I want you, before I go through the detail of it I want to pick out something here I want you to notice what he says in verse 19 at the very end he says this do in remembrance of me right so I ask the question there are lots of questions that we can ask about the Lord's Supper and we will ask them and answer them as we go through let's ask the first question why is it that we keep this feast and I'm going to call it a feast because it's the Lord's table and it's so richly spread which spread with so much blessing producing so much praise when it's understood now many a theologian will say it's not a feast well they're right it's not technically a biblical feast it's not called a feast they belong to the Old Testament but let's not go into that if we don't feast this morning if we're not fully fed there's something wrong you see with the joy of the Lord's presence right why do we keep this Lord's Supper? And I'm just going to say in simplicity, there's your answer. Because he asked us to. All right? Can we just keep it simple to start with? Please, let's just keep it simple. We keep it because he said, you do this in remembrance of me. Now when the Lord asks you to do something, right? And you love him. His request, because that's what it is, it's just, the wording here is quite gentle, it's just a request, isn't it? It sounds so gentle, but that request becomes a command. Why? Because you love him. And you know, we're dealing, let me speak carefully, we're dealing with the request of a dying man. He, he will die within hours, literally, of this, the next morning, the next day. And the request of a dying person is always sacred, even on the natural level. Isn't that true? I remember sometime, a little time back, there was somebody with whom I'd had a relationship, known for some years, but a very bad relationship I might add, and we had been nowhere near each other for a long time. A very bad relationship. And the family rang me, and much to my absolute amazement, said that this person was dying. Prematurely, I might add, wasn't very old at all. And they said, look, he's asked to talk to you. And before I could say much more, they were very apologetic and said, look, we understand if you don't come. And I was just gobsmacked, pardon me using that word, but just flabbergasted because I thought, well, I said, well, that's not the point. The point is, a dying man is asking to talk to me. End of story. You know, I, I, I must go. I must go. Well, that's nothing. It doesn't make me great. It's just normal kind of human humanity, of morality. How much more? How much more? 
when we are listening to the request of a soon-to-be-crucified Christ. And he just said, you do this to remember me. And that request becomes a command because I so much love him, I must do what he says. You get that? Now just stop there. You come there next week, you say, I'm going to remember the Lord. Why am I coming here? Oh, I must it. Come through the door and say, he asked me to come. <laughs> he asked me to the come. The one who, who is the very holder of the table and whose table it is, he asked me to come. Allow me just to give you a story, an illustration, a true one. When I was in the north of Scotland some 50-odd years ago, and the fishing villages along the eastern coast on the Murray Firth, where the winds are mighty strong and the storms are, are mighty fierce and the rain comes down and it's cold, cold, cold. They're all fisher folk along there. They had their boats and they used to go out to sea on the Sunday night and they would come back on the Saturday evening. They'd be out all week at sea. Not with boats like you see today. Not with all the satellite connections that they have today. These were brave fishermen who knew the hardships of life. And they asked me to come out with them and I was too terrified, quite bluntly. Forget the fact that I might be a poor sailor. Those boats weren't very big. And the North Sea's rough. And the Atlantic Ocean is, is dangerous. Really dangerous. What you noticed in the churches up there was the number of widows that were there. Why? Because their men were fisher folk and they'd been lost at the sea. On the Saturday evening, we used to go to a house that was a croft that overlooked the, the sea, uh, on a cliff it was, and all the women folk of the church would come there on the Saturday night and they'd go upstairs in the attic and sit on forms looking out the window, straight over the sea, pitch black, couldn't see a thing. They'd all be sitting there and there'd be a certain amount of apprehension and silence and then you'd see some lights just on the horizon. Now you knew whose ship it was by the way the lights were arranged. You see, and one of the ladies would say, Ach, that's my man! And she we'd go, we him. Right? To get ready for a man coming in from the sea. You got it? And you see there'd be a little crowd of them there and one would go and the next would go. Another would go and another would go. And the last one would be sitting there you can sense the apprehension, you know, will my man come here? And then finally the light would come over the ah, and she'd be gone with such a sense of delight. Well, <clears throat> suffice to say about that, they were tough men. There was an old man in the church called Jock. We'll call him Jock. He was a retired fisherman, and he was pretty bent and bowed with the brutality of life. He was an old man, he was a frail man, he was knocked about the... We didn't have the medical care that in those days, 50 years ago, that we've got now. And he used to come every Sunday to the church, and he'd come to remember the Lord. And one day it was absolutely bucketing. And the wind up there, I tell you, it goes through you, it doesn't go around you. And the rain nearly drowned you with its squalls. And one by one the people would arrive at the church, <coughs> and the deacon at the door would open it up, let him in and quickly shut it and... And they were saturated and dripping and shaking and pulling their boots off and their raincoats, etc., etc. And just before the service was due to start, somebody was at the door. They open up the door and who is it? It's old Jock. And he staggers in and he falls against the wall, puffing and panting and the rain's dripping off his old sou'wester and his raincoat's saturated and his boots are wet and he's gasping and he's puffing and he's panting and, oh, the deacon runs to help him to get out of his place. Oh, man, Jock. For why do you come on a day like this? Ah, he says, the master asked me to. Do you get that? 
The master asked me to. To him that request was a command. Yet in his love for the master he would not stay away. May the Lord keep us simple like that to start with. Let's stay simple, eh? There are many reasons to be found as to why we would do it. But look, let's just start with the fact that he asked us to do it. Now you say, well, how often would I do it? Um, Well, some churches keep it every 12 months. I think that must be because they're connected with the Passover. And don't laugh at them, you know, they're not all reformed. The Baptists do that too. Here, in Australia, many Baptists do that. Quite a number, I should say. Every year. Then others keep it every three months. Well, maybe that's... I don't know where that comes from. It could well be the idea of the feast times when they, four times in the year, they would appear before the Lord. Could be. Some keep it monthly. All right? Some keep it fortnightly. (laughs) I don't know why. I can't answer any of that. Some keep it weekly. You see that very much with the Catholic faith and they call it the Mass, we'll say. Big difference in the meanings. The Anglicans, certainly that's done there and certainly we do it here. And you might... What does the scripture say? The scripture says, as often as ye do it. All right, That's pretty plain. As often. It's perhaps not quite so clear as to how often. And I'm not really going to vaunt ourselves as being right and wrong and everybody else, you know, on the lesser run of the ladder. Um, But if you do read the Acts of the Apostles, you will find, first of all, that the Lord's Supper was celebrated on the first day of the week. Definitely so. No doubt about that. And look, perhaps not quite as clearly, but certainly very likely, it was celebrated on every first day of the week. Quite likely. We'll leave it at that, and it's an appropriate day because it's the day of the resurrection. I just want you to notice one other thing. I want you to notice just what he did. And I'll read it slowly because it's powerful, the way it's written. Verse 19, he took bread... He gave thanks, break it, gave it to them. Now this is all symbolic as to what it means. And then he says, you know, it's his body. It's given for you. But I just want you to notice that. He, this is symbolic, took bread, the symbol of his body. Right. And then he gave thanks. And then he broke it. And then he gave it to them. You see, that bread was a symbol of his body and it symbolised the fact that we mentioned this morning of his coming into the world. And he's saying, a body have you prepared me. He would live within the confines of a human body with all the limitations and frustrations of humanity when he had dwelt in the boundless expanses of eternity even the heaven of heavens could not contain him yet oh mystery of mystery in grace and love because he would come to meet our need and to be as one of us he would confine himself he would take a body And the Lord Jesus has already done this for 33 and a half years. He's known the pain of the parting from the glory of heaven and the wonder of his Father's side and love. Veronica often prays that 
Chunda from that him out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe only his great eternal love could make my saviour go and the Lord Jesus has experienced the, the, the pain shall I say of leaving heaven and coming to a, a sinful earth and moving amongst sinful man and being confined to the constraints, constraints of the human body he, was, he knows what it cost him. He knows the pain of it all. He's already troubled in his spirit. Do you know what he did? He gave thanks. Oh, wonder of all wonders. Knowing what it meant, him and having experienced it, he gave thanks. He was so prepared to save a sinner like you. And he was so prepared in love to come and save a sinner like me. And he was so prepared to fulfill the will of God and the promise of God, right back from Genesis, right through the prophecies of Isaiah, right on to the wonder of his birth. He gave thanks. Then he took it and he broke it. And when that bread is broken, and we sort of miss it a little bit today because we sort of chop it all up first, not speaking against any customer or anything, don't get me wrong, but just, just envisage this, he, he literally broke it. I was glad to see they broke it this morning because it means a lot to me. Broke it, broke it. And that's, that breaking symbolised in that body he would suffer. He would suffer the pains of not only being in that body but then the pains of taking that body and offering it as an offering for sin. And between the taking of it and the breaking of it, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. This is the wonder of the love of the Lord Jesus. The wonder of his commitment to the will of God. The wonder of his determination to seek and to save that which was lost. A sinner such as you and I. He gives thanks with those in between those two events. And then he turns and he gives it to them. And he says, in like manner he took also the cup. Now that probably means that he just took that, they would have taken the Passover cup and it says here he gave thanks for the bread and in like manner he probably gave thanks for the cup as well in that order. I'm not going to argue about whether you should give thanks twice or once or two together or not. There's nothing I'm not interested in that. We're just looking at what the Lord Jesus did. And he says this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Would you go home with that ringing in your ears this morning? Shed for you. Given for you. And capture the personal nature of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I take one of the emblems, I seem to hear him ringing those words of his ringing in my ears. For you. Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. Given for you, the Son of Man, the Son of God, he loved me and he gave himself for me. If we can go away this morning and not have a deep sense of gratitude 
praise, worship, because we've been set free personally to serve Him, then we have missed the point of our gathering. We fail to appreciate the fullness of the personal love of our God. It's expressed so fully in the work of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we say, For me, Lord Jesus, you have died, and I have died with thee. You are risen, and now art glorified, and now you live in me, and we live in him. So may the Lord just encourage us as we continue next week to look more fully at the meaning of the supper that he instituted. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would send us on our way with that song in our hearts, the song of the soul that's been set free. And Lord, we might go away with a more, a deeper appreciation and understanding of the fullness of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We might say together again, the Son of God, he loved me and he gave himself for me. And may our hearts be strangely warmed. May our faith be enriched and strengthened for the conflict of the week that lies ahead. And we might just pursue onward the pathway of faith and we might run with endurance, looking off unto Jesus, truly the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we are blessed this morning. We are grateful for the table spread in the midst of our enemies. We are grateful for the table of the word of God that feeds our souls regularly, every day. And may we feast again. May we open the door to the Lord Jesus for the remainder of this week so that he can come in unto us and he can sup with us. And we can sup with him and enjoy the food that he spreads so needful for the nourishment of our faith and of our souls. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit truly be our blessing and our portion through these days until our Lord shall come. Amen.